welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Prulty. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Caster Eunice, CEO and co-founder of Applied Intuition, and Peter Ludwig, CTO and co-founder of Applied Intuition. On today's episode, we discuss the virtual world and how Applied Intuition is enabling the future of autonomy. We hope you enjoy this episode. Gentlemen, you're truly building the future, and so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on SAE tomorrow today, because I, I can't wait to have this conversation, because simulation is going to play an incredibly important role in the future of autonomy. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Caster, to, to kick things off, for a listener who might not be familiar with Applied Intuition, how would you describe the company and the role the company's playing in enabling autonomous driving? We're a software company that vehicle manufacturers use who are focusing on autonomy. Uh, so we build tools and infrastructure that engineers use kind of on a daily basis to build autonomous systems and bring them to, to market faster and, and more safely. At the highest level, you know, we're, we're building simulators, but lots of uh, other tools as well. There's all this news that came out of CES. This has been going on years that the future of the car is going to be defined by software. Yeah. Is that a correct statement, would you say? Yeah, I think so. And I think everybody who works in the uh, automotive industry, I think, uh, you know, no, no one would debate that. I think maybe 10 years ago, that was much more debatable. And software is always, you know, as it's, software in the vehicle is not an absolutely a new thing. So maybe it's a better definition of where consumers expect a specific software experience. And uh, that's going into their purchasing decisions now. Uh, whereas maybe, you know, 20 years ago, you're looking at things like fuel efficiency and maybe the sound of the engine and a few other other things, how the seats feel. Those things are all still relevant and important in each product. But software now is also really an important uh, decision maker as well. Peter, you're allowing your customers by using your software to safely develop, test, and deploy Thomas vehicles. So what Casser mentioned, the, the, the experience in the, in the cockpit, in the cabin, the passenger wants to have it, and then Applied saying, wait a second, we're going to ensure that you have the software tools to build something safe. How are you doing that, and how are your uh, customers using those tools? That's, that's exactly right. So we provide a suite of software. So it's not just one tool, but it's actually a, a, a lot of tools that, uh, that each help our customers uh, build specific modules and then integrate those modules together for a production system. And so, for example, we have tools around development of motion planning algorithms, uh, around perception system development, around control system development, as well as re-simulation and actually a, bu a bunch of other facets of these systems. And, um, and we also do things on the infrastructure side. So it's not enough just to have great simulation tools, but there's entire workflows that revolve around these tools. And, and fundamentally, simulation allows our customers to, to do things faster and more cost-effectively than uh, would be possible in the real world. And, and furthermore, when you have everything tied together into a, a great uh, test infrastructure system, you can have a lot of confidence that any software change is actually safe when you're able to run all these simulation tests before it makes its way to vehicles. When you're, you're sitting down there with Caster and the team say, we're going to develop the ultimate suite of software. We're going to become the tier one of software for the automotive industry. How did you pick and choose what areas to focus on? Was it the most mission critical areas? Was it the areas that you saw had the biggest growth? How did you choose those pieces to build that software suite that your clients then can use to build a better product for eventually their end customers? 
Well, to be honest, we love working on really hard problems. And so we, we started uh, by actually choosing some of the things that we thought were the most difficult to do. And, uh, and related to them being difficult to do, it also means that there's not necessarily a, a lot of competition working on the most challenging things. And so that did allow us to sort of narrow in on, on a, a certain set of things which we felt were not being done well in industry that, uh, that we uh, could, could do much better. And that was sort of the, the seed to a lot of the uh, product efforts that we've tackled over the last five years. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, uh, using um, uh, using the fact that we're in Silicon Valley to our advantage. Right. So Silicon Valley is really good at software. And uh, and and so picking a area of the business, which is technically complicated, that's that's in the software domain plays also to the strength of the local talent pool that we we tap out of. Um, and so all, all those, you know, no one thing dominates the decision, but they're all kind of ingredients that make the, you know, the whole. Okay. You say you're good at software. I say you're great at software. I, I look at this up. You have customers. You've got VW. Okay. You've got Toyota. You've got GM. You've got Motional. You've got Kodiak. And I go down the line. So obviously you're, you're doing something right on the software front. What's special in the software that all these leading OEMs and startups are going and, and knocking on your door and saying, okay, applied. We're working with you. Let's go. Yeah, I think um, so. You know, these companies that you mentioned and, and, and a bunch of others, they're 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 quite technically competent, and uh, so you know they're not picking us because you know Peter and I are the best salespeople. Let's just say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think uh, I mean they do rigorous analysis sometimes. You know, certainly months and sometimes years uh, of, of diligence. So uh, those those customers are easy to rattle off, but they're actually very very hard to convince. And uh, frankly, you just take the OEMs as an example, and and honestly, even the Bay Area, you know, AV companies, they want to work with the best, right? And so, if you uh, in your recent podcast, you had uh, uh, you know episode with Daimler Trucks, and they made a similar comment. Um, they and, and you know we're we're partners with them, and they said you know we're look, we're assessing the entire ecosystem, and we're working with the best. And so the question really is is why do these companies want to work with the best? Well, because this is a very competitive ecosystem. And any edge you can get is, a, uh, is, is important, especially something as important as the tooling that your engineers use, because those engineers themselves are quite uh, expensive. They're quite competent. You want to be effective with their time. They want to use great tools, tools that are easy to use, tools that are you know, maintained. Uh, I mean, something that, for instance, isn't isn't often talked about in in software and tooling specifically is maintaining these tools is actually quite difficult. And maintaining these massive, uh, you know, code repositories where we're doing very frequent releases, we can promise that to the customer. And especially with, the, you know, the, the customers that you mentioned, I think they see that over quarters and years and, and, and now many years where they're like, hey, well, these tools are maintained and they're getting better and better and better and better. So I think those are, you know, at the highest level, it's because the tools are, you know, are category leading tools. But I would say more on the day-to-day kind of, uh, you know, pragmatic, how are they evaluating tools? They they look at the features, they look at how we work together, they look at our support and all those things kind of play into it. And when I mean support, I mean our ability to maintain these high quality tools uh, over long periods of time. Do your customers have input into new features they might ring you up or somebody on the help desk and say, hey, could you add this feature or add that feature? Is it a collaborative as you look to new releases to 
uh, improve the product? Absolutely, yes. Most of our development is informed by, frankly, what our customers uh, want and what, what they need. That doesn't mean, of course, that we'll build necessarily exactly the thing that they ask uh, every single time, but um, everything works as input to our larger product strategy. And of course, oftentimes, if a customer is working on a very narrow problem, they might be looking for a, a, maybe a very narrow solution when in fact there, that uh, narrow solution is, is actually part of a, a broader problem and a broader solution. And so with our products, of course, we're, we're trying to solve both the narrow and the broad problems uh, by providing uh, uh, software solutions that can work across industries. Yeah, I mean, uh, also what's, what's helpful uh, is, you know, the talent pool that we have comes from the entire industry. So on the level four AV side, you know, the company as a whole, by the way, over half of the company comes from Google. So we're heavily a Google shop. We, we, and, and Google, you know, makes mistakes on, on, on things, but what Google is really, really good at, almost kind of the almost undisputed leader is building large scale infrastructure and lots of complicated software. It's a, it's a software first company. It's not a social network. It's not an e-commerce player. It, it, it does those things. But really, it's core, uh, core, you know, the inside joke inside of Google is it's an infrastructure company that does consumer apps once in a while. And I think, you know, that, that, that plays into uh, our, our uh, reason of why we recruit so heavily. But we also recruit a lot of people from, you know, so, you know, the, 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 obviously the Waymos, the Cruises, the Auroras, the Neuros, you know, we have all those folks. But on the other side of the house, the Aptives, the Bosches, I, I worked at Bosch, uh, the, you know, the General Motors, we have very traditional automotive experience as well. And that combined mixed with our input from our customers, I think creates a very accurate understanding of what is capable and what we can build and what we can deliver uh, quickly. So all of those things are, again, our, our ingredients. It's healthy. You're, you're getting, both sides, you're getting the traditional automotive on one side. You're getting the, you call it the, uh, I like that, the industrial infrastructure on the other side of the future. And you're putting it together and saying, okay, this is the way forward. This is the best path forward. Peter, from a a technical perspective, is that knowledge, say, from Detroit and Silicon Valley meshing together in the digital world, is that the secret sauce that's winning your customers over? Or, or what is that technical secret sauce? They say, yes, this this is the way to do it. Yeah, I think those things that you mentioned are are incredibly important. Um, I would say at the highest level, though, really what we're, what we're doing is we are taking what we know to be best practices in, in software engineering and development. And we've built a modern suite of tools around those best practices. Whereas uh, if I'm perhaps comparing us to, uh, to other solutions that are available, oftentimes they're starting with legacy tools and trying to adapt those to more modern practices. And there's a lot of trade-offs when you have to, have to make uh, uh, product decisions around, around that framing. And uh, really our operating, our operating uh, uh, modality is such that our engineering team really think of themselves as we are an extension of our customers. We want to do uh, what they want uh, us to do, and we want to enable all the use cases that uh, that they want. And so, for example, uh, en enabling uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, re-simulations to run in a single day. This might be a, a request that a customer gives to us, and then our engineering team is able to deploy our solution in a way that meets those requirements very quickly. What kind of compute power does that take? Yeah, in, in terms of compute resources, um, 
A lot, to be honest, um, to the extent that running into resource contention at uh, at major data centers can certainly be an issue in, in some circumstances. Uh, there's, of course, many ways to to actually take advantage of large scale compute. It can be on an on prem cluster or or in a, a public cloud. Um, but uh, there's no question that there is a, a large and um, uh, and critical compute uh, resource that's required uh, for bringing these systems to production. You mentioned a little bit that not all companies build their tools from the ground up. Did Apply, did you build all your tools from the ground up? We did, yeah. And that's actually been critical to to our strategy as uh, as building very differentiated solutions that uh, are not just uh, slightly better than something else, but are uh, are really significantly better. And, uh, and that's been recognized by, by our customers and, and the engineers that use our tools. And I, I want to highlight... I'm going to go into your suite of tools here because you've got a lot of impressive stuff. But one that's standard is Strata. You allow um, AVs to log and search on-road driving. Customers of yours that are friends of mine, I have conversations and they rave about your product. Could you talk about that uh, product, please? Absolutely. So Strata is our tool for uh, drive log management. Uh, you can think of this uh, a little bit like it's Google search, but for the data that comes off of robots, whether those... Uh, our cars or trucks or uh, or unmanned aircraft. So we work across industries, of, of course. This isn't just uh, in, in automotive, but it's a, it's a phenomenal tool for allowing engineers to identify uh, important snippets, uh, important events that occurred in the real world, and then using that information to inform their next phase or their next uh, features that they need to develop. Uh, part of that is uh, algorithm tuning. Part of that is uh, model development, and so data sets and, and things that actually uh, go into the, uh, the machine learning models that are used in these systems. And part of it also is it's informing product strategy for what, what features do they actually have enough confidence in, in raising to a production level versus need to be in development for a while longer. Kasser, you're, you're taking this to the next level. You've got a partnership with Motional, who's probably got more on-road miles besides anybody besides Waymo. They're scaling their Vegas operation. You're importing their new scenes data set into Strata. Can you talk about that partnership, please? Yeah, it's uh, the the new scenes data set is a is a public large scale for anyone who doesn't know is a public large scale autonomous driving data set with uh, camera data. It says lidar data and and it has 3D object labels, and it's generally very well regarded in the research community. And uh, we've basically built a version of Strata for research and development teams that are working with new scenes data. And I think, uh, you know, again, very well uh, received uh, from, from engineers who are actually tackling these problems on a, on a day-to-day basis. And some of that stuff is online for anybody to consume if you're interested. Peter, from a technical standpoint, what are the benefits of that partnership? We've worked with the new scenes team to really develop uh, a solution here that enables academic and research teams. It's very similar to what we do on the commercial side. And so this allows these academic and research teams to take advantage of all of the feature depth of, of Strata. So searching for interesting events, uh, searching for weaknesses um, in, uh, in, in, the, in the data or in their own models. And fundamentally, it, it, uh, it allows them to advance their own work and their research faster uh, than, than if they didn't have this at their disposal. In a nutshell, it's going to help accelerate autonomy in a safe and efficient manner. That's exactly right. And Kasser, you've got a traditional automotive background. Both yourself and, and Peter are from Michigan. And you understand the traditional automotive business. You have individuals that work with Apply that 
come out of the traditional automotive business. And then now it's no longer the traditional automotive business. It's the mobility business. Everything has a subscription. Mary Barr gives a speech at CES. We're going to do this. Jim Farley at Ford gives a speech. We're going to get two titans of Detroit saying this is this is the mobility business. You started your career in Detroit. You've witnessed change. You're now on the leading edge of software. How would you describe this change and where do you think this is going? Because I think that we're in a really fascinating stance when you get two icons of Detroit with GM Ford saying, this is the future. This is where we're going. Yeah. I mean, I think it means for, you know, everybody who's in the automotive business that we, we need, we need to be adaptable. Uh, I think more now than, than maybe in the last, any time in the last hundred years, you're having huge, huge changes uh, in the industry. And uh, of course, you know, if, if you've worked in automotive, you know, automotive is really an industry of suppliers. And, um, and so the tier ones, the tier twos, I think they'll continue to need to evolve as well. And many of them are customers. And so we work with them through this evolution and we try to enable this evolution. I, I do think, you know, if we were talking, if we we're having this conversation in 2015, you wouldn't be talking about Apple and Google and Qualcomm and, uh, you know, Amazon and Intel, but now you're talking about all of those folks. And so I think everybody in the industry, um, it's kind of like we're all at, you know, we're all at a party and it was, you know, all of us before GM, Ford, Chrysler and uh, Aptiv and, uh, or Delphi. And then suddenly these, you know, these new guys come in, they're kind of, the whole party's changing. <laughs> and so, uh, so we need to be cognizant of that because they're, they're not going away. Um, I think you're going to see all, all of the, all of these big tech players to continue to invest billions of dollars in the ecosystem. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there is this, you know, impending threat to the existing players. Uh, Tesla obviously is, is another one that's really fundamentally changed uh, the, the industry. But it does mean that you have to really evaluate what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and who are you going to partner with to get to the next step. And so in terms of, you know, uh, when we talk to our customers and, and when, we, when we talk with our, our partners, uh, we really talk a lot of times about that change and how we want to be that long-term partner uh, because we know both sides of the house qu quite well. I think where there's missteps uh, are these, uh, uh, you know, let's say, let's say organizations that have had a longer history in automotive. So not the Apples, not the Googles. They just look at their partners almost like a traditional procurement relationship. It's like, okay, well, we're going to have a, you know, uh, I used to buy rubber this way. Or I used to buy glass this way. I used to buy windshield wipers this way. I'm going to buy software that way. And software is not like that. Um, having thousands of people doesn't necessarily always mean you're going to win in software. Uh, sometimes tiny teams can have huge, huge success uh, because of their relevant experience and their relevant product. And so if you're in an OEM, or you're in a supplier, recognizing that just the fundamental dynamics of the ecosystem are changing. And therefore, you can't approach the new ecosystem with, I would say, a legacy organizational view or a legacy procurement process, because that works well when you're buying commodity goods, but software is not a commodity good. Uh, not yet. It will be one day, just like everything else, but not yet. Software's fundamentally changed the business forever. There's no going back. So, uh, you know, as a mechanical engineer, that hurts, but, <laughs> but Peter's a, Peter did computer science at Michigan. So, uh, you know, <laughs> at least half of us, uh, pick the right, right degree. <laughs> yeah, but the mechanical engineering background that had to had to help you to get to where you were because you understand how 
things were built with actual physical nuts and bolts. Is, am I correct on that? Yeah, yeah. I say that just as a, more for the joke than anything else. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud GMI uh, Mechie. So. <laughs> <laughs> is the next level of the mobility business, the next evolution, is it software and partnerships? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If you look at, uh, for example, um, the pure, you know, the Silicon Valley software group, sometimes people think these are oh, purely verticalized companies because that's what you hear. But for a long time, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and even to, to today, all of these organizations work interchangeably with each other. Apple does work with Google. Google uh, does uh, uh, work with Apple and vice versa. And so then the question becomes, well, what part should you play in as, as, a, as, a, as an individual uh, company? And that's where you have to define what your strength is. And weak leadership, I would say, generally thinks, well, everything's going to be our strength. You know, we're, we're, we're going to be good on, on tools, algorithms, vehicles, on the network, on really every single thing. And if, unless you're, you know, unless you're General Motors, <laughs> uh, that's probably not going to be the case. Um, and even General Motors has been very thoughtful considering how much resources and how many people that they have. Um, and so in that partnership relationship, in that software relationship, it really is figuring out what am I good at? And what, what's the minimum, absolute minimum area that I need to be proficient at? And I'm going to let somebody else do everything else. And, uh, and I think, you know, the car business historically has been that. And, and, and I think so there is some strengths there in how to manage suppliers, how to manage supply chain, how to manage very complicated multi-year uh, platforms and, and, and time horizon projects that have, you know, multi-year time horizons. And so bringing some of that expertise. Now, the change has to be, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to get what you get. And so you, you do want to look at new partnerships and you want to think about how are these new players impacting the ecosystem and what's going to be our relationship to them. I don't think it necessarily has to be antagonistic between, you know, a, a, a GM and a Google, but um, Waymo and Cruise are competing. So make no, make no, you know, uh, there's no qualms about that. So you have to be thoughtful because at the same time, Cruise uses uh, Google's uh, cloud infrastructure. And, and if, you know, if Google's going to uh, get big in the autonomy ecosystem, they're going to buy vehicles from traditional OEMs. So it's not, that's, that's where all the complicated questions are. They're not binary. They're, they're on a gradient. Uh, they're, they're on a grayscale. And, and as leadership, you have to figure out where am I going to play? Where am I not going to play? I like that play to your, your strengths. Obviously, Peter Applied's playing to your strengths with software and how do you see in-vehicle software evolving over the years, and what role will over-the-air updates play in that? Interestingly, actually, uh, six or seven years ago, I was working on Android in the automotive context, and uh, and even back then, it was uh, it was already quite important, and it's only continued to become more and more important. I think that. Um, in vehicle software, of course, has many facets. There's, of course, the um, the let's say the infotainment system. It's the, uh, the the pixels and the user experience. There's also, uh, of course, the behind the scene functions that are actually uh, running and operating the vehicle to the charging state of the batteries and and all of the things that are involved in electrification. I think, though, that um, in general, uh, these systems are only going to get more complex. Uh, it's sort of a one-way one uh, one highway in, in, in that direction. The complexity is going to go up and up. And along with that complexity, you need better tools uh, to build that software and have it be reliable over the long run. And um, with regards to 
um, maintaining that software over time, I think for the first time now in 2022, there is going to be a general expectation from consumers that their vehicle software is going to improve over time. Tesla has started to make this more mainstream, but I think for the first time, people will be buying cars expecting that the experience that they have in the cabin is actually going to be better in year two or year three than it was when they first bought the vehicle. And uh, and there is a lot of adaptation that uh, that is happening in the industry to make that happen. And I do think that um, related to the partnerships question uh, we just uh, we just discussed, uh, that uh, successful CEOs and executives uh, at automotive companies they are looking for partnerships. And uh, and in some cases, of course, we um, we are and uh, and uh, we we hope to support our customers in those in those efforts. That's fantastic. When you Cassie, you look at. Peter stepped into complex. Now I'm going to go to a really complex topic, supply chains. I was reading the Financial Times over the weekend, and the, every every uh, Saturday the FT does the big read, where they do an in-depth, incredible reporting. And this weekend's big read was on the global supply chain disruption. It's not it's not slowing down. A big a big role of the supply chain are, are the warehouses where we're going to store goods. So if somebody wants to get Cheerios or a gift they can get it in time it's stored in warehouses apply applied has a partnership with secret to enhance uh, 3d virtual warehouses could you talk about that partnership and in, in the in the importance for, for the overall growth of the supply chain of what you're doing with that please yeah absolutely so if for those who don't know uh, secret is a uh, one of the world leaders in autonomous mobile robots called amr uh, technologies and um, so they provide these AMRs to warehouses and factories and distribution centers. And uh, our partnership is about safely testing and validating Seagrid's next generation AMR before deploying it to end users in, in kind of real world production facilities. Now, uh, for the folks who don't know, there's a kind of example use cases here. Unlike an, a, you know, a car in the warehouse example, what's different about AMRs is They'll have to detect things like pallets and uh, lift and haul uh, and move things to, to various surfaces. And so we let their development team simulate uh, that robot articulation and manipulation. So it's, it's a little different from the ADAS kind of experience that everybody kind of uh, is, would be familiar with or a lot of the listeners would be familiar with. Another example would be in the AMR uh, use case you're going to have tens or maybe even hundreds of robots working together in concert in a warehouse. And uh, we, you know, we provide the, uh, the frameworks and the tools uh, to actually validate those workflows. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great partnership. Uh, we, we do work across lots of different verticals. It's one that we've just recently, recently uh, gone into. But our macro kind of view is anything that moves will be autonomous. So in that supply chain from the port all the way to the to the dock, to the highways in between, to the warehouses in between uh, each of those uh, you know each of those highways. There is autonomy applications, and there are autonomy applications, and and we want to help enable them just to move them. You know, get get them there faster. I was talking earlier uh, today to somebody who worked on um, robotic, has worked on robotics for many many years, and they said, you know, before companies like Applied, the comp- the the robotics company had to build everything themselves. And when you have limited, and, and no company, 
And we've never met a customer who said, we have too many resources. <laughs> Even every company we ever meet says, we're limited on resources, we're limited on budget, we're limited on time. And, and that's what we're there for. We're, we're, because, like, for example, we, you know, all the customers we talked about before and Seagrid, because we're building these tools for all of these customers, we can centralize those costs. Kind of like, you know, a Bosch would take all the break, break, you know, module demand from lots of different customers and put it in one factory. Or, you know, Lear automotive, you know, taking, taking seats and putting that demand in one factory. We kind of do the same thing. And so in the supply chain, there are actually, not only is it relevant because it's, it's, uh, you know, the vehicles are involved, but also because, uh, the types of problems that the supply chain faces throughout the, the network are actually similar. And so we can help kind of across all of those different use cases. Then you've got this complex suite of tools. Well, at some point you expand into ports and so you can offer optimization tools for the ports to help them move the containers or optimize their operations. Is that, is that coming next? Yeah, we I mean, we already do. Uh, so uh, <laughs> not to you know to, not to put any spoilers out there, but uh, we uh, we are uh, we already do. And you know, in in general, and whether it's ports or or, or in trucking, there are labor shortages kind of left and right in in yards where trailers are being dropped off and picked up. And so you're going to see autonomy coming more and more uh, in each of these fields. Yeah. So I, there's a massive massive uh, market here, and where goods are being moved. And that massive market is going to get more and more and more autonomous. You know, one of the interesting um, uh, ways you can look at like kind of sci-fi movies, you know, it's like when art imitates life and then life imitates art. That, that happens. I mean, in, in the future, if we were, you know, if, if we're 50 years in the future and you're driving by a construction scene, you can imagine robots are just building that building or they're just clearing out that dirt. That's going to happen. And so our goal is to accelerate those timelines and bring that economic efficiency to us, you know, to us, the, 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 the global citizens and, and kind of the, the U.S. citizens uh, to, to, to really bring efficiency of automation to as many industries as possible to lower the cost of goods, which allows us to reallocate our own individual consumer spending on other things. So, yeah, bringing efficiency across lots of different areas. Peter, what Kasser just said is, is the magic sauce, lower the cost of goods for consumers. If somebody can go to the store and get a car, uh, milk for 15 cents cheaper, meat can go down 30% where it should be, and you can lower that, you're doing really good by society. And you're, you're applied to doing great stuff in the digital world. So you, you, you're, I'm very happy, Kasser. Thank you for saying that you're working in ports because that's cool. But you also have the autonomous trucking side of the house and uh, ben Hastings, the CTO of Torque, who's a customer of Applied, he, he stated the following publicly. Simulation allows our team to test new features and capabilities of the autonomous system on hundreds of thousands of different scenarios in a virtual world. Peter, is that virtual world based on a real world where they say, okay, Applied, hey, Peter, we want to design this area. Can you make a digital version of this town or... This is that how is that what Mr. Hayton is referring to? Yeah, that, that's one of the techniques. In fact, there's actually several ways that we help our customers in in this uh, in, in this realm. So uh, certainly, uh, we we can and we have created digital twins of real areas um, that are very accurate to those relocations, and in fact, those are very very useful for a certain set of use cases. 
very high visual fidelity, uh, very accurate physics simulation of each of the sensors that the, the vehicles are using to, uh, to, to see those worlds essentially. So, you can, uh, so we can reproduce that, that sensor data very accurately compared to what, what the vehicle would see in the real world. Uh, but there's also other techniques that we use um, for, for different use cases. Uh, again, it, it depends on exactly what the customer, uh, what the customer is, is developing. And really the great thing about the way that we've architected our solutions is that they are quite flexible. And so when a customer needs a, a very high fidelity digital twin, we can do that. If they also want a, a very low cost uh, system that uh, meets a certain uh, list of criteria that they have for a certain program, um, we can also do that. Uh, so our, our tools are, are flexible to meet uh, both, of, both of those types of needs. Flexible approach. Question, are there ports in those digital worlds? <laughs> we we have done work with ports, yes, and uh, and in fact, adding on to what I had just previously said, we can also do those in in uh, different ways. We can do them in a very high fidelity digital twin type environment, or we can we can actually do them in a procedural fashion, where uh, it's think of it like uh, programming uh, uh, an application, but instead programming uh, an environment. And then, uh, and then when you program that environment, you can vary it and create specific differences each time that you generate that environment, which again opens up uh, really interesting use cases for, for the testability of the system when you can generate different environments. Kasser, what Peter describes sounds like I'm sitting here watching CNBC right now and there's a guest talking about the metaverse. <laughs> no matter any time you turn on a financial news program or if it's Bloomberg or whatever it might be, there's a conversation around the metaverse. For a listener sitting here and say, okay, Applied Intuition's a metaverse company. Now, we both know you're not a metaverse company. How would you compare and contrast what Applied Intuition's doing to what the perceived notion of the metaverse is? Yeah, um, so the, the, the metaverse is for humans, um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and what we build is for, are for robots. So, uh, so maybe our, our metaverse is specific for robots. But yeah, there, I mean, there are some honestly parallels in the sense that, you know, we're building virtual worlds, uh, but robots are actually have a much higher... <laughs> higher standard for a virtual world than, than human beings do. Ro robots are much more discerning. And so uh, uh, I, I don't want to down talk any other company working on, on, on these virtual environments. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. Uh, Peter, what's, what's the big difference between humans and robots in terms of a simulated environment? Yeah, it really does all come down to the safety critical nature of the simulation. So everything that we do is targeted at production systems that are safety critical. And uh, whereas I think oftentimes when the metaverse is talked about, uh, let's say in the in the Facebook uh, co context, because they're <laughs> they've now rebranded the whole company around it, it's uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, with safety or robotics, and it really is just about frankly having fun and and enjoyment. And um, of course we. We, we have fun, we enjoy our jobs, but when it comes down to it, our tools are designed for safety-critical production systems. It's, it's a bit more serious. <laughs> but your strength, Caster and Peter, you're building tools that will save lives. You're, you're building tools that are allowing companies to scale, and you're doing good by society. There's nothing wrong with playing video games or having fun, but you're, and I'll use the term, mission-critical. Your technology will, will allow the consumer to, to afford milk or to afford groceries. So I tip my hat to you for that because you're onto something. Peter, and Castro, I'm going to ask you this, but I'd love to start with Peter. What is the future of applied intuition? The future of applied intuition really is 
helping create a world where software-enabled vehicles are an integral part of society. And this is not just an automotive, but really across all industries uh, where there are vehicles. And, and of course, our software tooling being a, a big part of, uh, of making those vehicles a reality. That's, that's the future of blood intuition. Caster, please. Yeah, I, uh, I think like every other business, we got to continue to grow, grow aggressively. We're a venture-backed company, and so uh, we have big targets to hit. And, and, and so we'll continue to expand our product lines, expand our geography, and, and grow. Um, so, so hopefully the next time we talk, we're, you know, we, have, we have more products and, and we have more great customers, and, uh, and, and we're making a bigger impact to the engineers who use our tools every single day. Gentlemen, this has been an awesomely wonderful conversation. As we look to uh, wrap this up, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Peter, we'll, Peter, we'll start with you. Okay. Yeah, I think as a, as a company, um, we, we really want to uh, enable our customers to, to build the best possible products. And we, we exist purely in support of our customers. And frankly, also, we, we just had our best year as a company. Uh, we are continuing to grow. And, um, and that means there's a, a lot of opportunity ahead. Awesome. Kesser? Yeah, applied.co slash careers is what I would say, or appliedintuition.com slash careers. Um, we, we're, we're definitely growing, as, as Peter said, uh, uh, best year in the company's history by, by far. And so that allows us to have more resources, to hire more people, to build even better tools, and, uh, and to accelerate kind of the, the, the path to autonomy. Um, and so if, if technical problems are, are really interesting to you, if autonomy is really interesting to you, if automotive is really interesting to you, there's a good chance we have a, an opening that, that, that might be interesting for you. Something a little birdie on my shoulder says that Applied will keep growing. These two gentlemen lead an incredible company, which having an incredible impact, not just on technology, but an impact on society. Tomorrow is today. Today is tomorrow. The future is Applied Intuition. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. Be sure to join us next week when we speak with Alan L. Kornhauser, Professor, Operations, Research, and Financial Engineering, Princeton University, as we discuss the future of mobility. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.